0: We're continuing our series in the Book of Exodus. Today I'll be reading Exodus 7. As you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us. And the Lord said to Moses, "See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, out of his land." But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring, out, and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand out against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent." Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. Um, When we were pulling up to church this morning, uh, my little girl, she's two years old, said, "We're home." I thought that was pretty good. I hope um, that those of you who do call Christ Community home feel that to some degree that this is home for you. We're part of a family together. And what binds us together is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm so thankful for that. I am thankful to call this place home. We are continuing this series through Exodus. And if you've been tracking with us, you can see right up there, the series we've been saying is the God who makes himself known. And this passage is no different, but kind of hones in on that point. When Jesus came to earth, He told everybody what he came to do. Um, He was sent by God so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's what he came to do. To save souls. To take away those who are perishing to eternal life. And then he had defined what eternal life is. It's going to actually be up here on your screen. John 17... Verse 3 says this Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. An author, J.I. Packer, wrote a book called Knowing God. It's a classic. I highly recommend it. He said it this way He said, What are we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for our lives? To know God. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24 says this, it will also be on the screen behind me. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I I delight, declares the Lord. J. Packer said this. The quote is also going to be behind me. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this, the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? What I hope and pray, what I have been hoping and praying for, even as we've gone through Exodus and as we navigate through this passage, Exodus 7 today, is just that exactly, that we would know God, that you would know God, that I would know God. There is no greater thing. And that is why God does what he does here with these plagues. That's what's happening here in chapter 7. Just so you can see it, um, and you'll see it's kind of the the anchor of this particular section of scripture, Uh, it'll be up here on the screen, but verse, chapter 7, I'm looking at Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, and then verse 17, here's verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and then in verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I want to know God. I want my life to be about knowing God. I want you to know God, and I want your life to be about knowing God. But what do I mean when I say we're made to know God? What does it mean to know God? And Packer, this this same author, gives a helpful illustration here. It does have to do with our passage today, so track with me. I hope you're sticking with me. This is what Packer said. The more complex the object we seek to know the more complex it is in knowing it so there's knowing for example a, a language you might say oh i i know chinese or i know spanish in that case to gain that language let's say that you weren't raised in that culture in order to learn the language to know the language you would have to study it you'd have to practice it that's one level of complexity then there's a then there's it gets more complex when the object is alive Right, It gets more complicated Like maybe the way you know a beloved pet Your dog or your cat or whatever You might say about her She's a good dog And by that you mean She's kind, she's trustworthy You've been through a lot together You've witnessed her character over time Through interaction It's more complex to get to know a living thing And then of course There's a person To know someone so, Somebody It takes time, it takes experience, and a willingness for the other person that you're in the relationship with to open themselves up to you, really for them to make themselves known to you. Now, there's a lot of different types of relationships that we're involved with, but what if that person would be considered above us, someone we feel like, let's say I'm gonna introduce you to someone, and when I introduce you to them, um, you might feel like that person is, is above you. Someone higher ranking Or someone smarter Or more influential Or professionally more advanced Or personally more holy than you And you feel like Wow that Well I don't know I don't know that you want me To introduce introduce me to that person We feel inferior In a situation like that And therefore um, We would let the other person Initiate that kind of conversation We might not even feel like We belong in the room We want to get to know them It would be cool to know that person That person's amazing right But We know it's completely up to him or her. But what if, when you are introduced to that person, that person pulls you aside and starts trusting you with all kinds of confidential, important information, matters. They're inviting your help. They want you to be available at any time because they need to rely on you. They want you to be involved in what they're doing. Imagine the way that you'd feel walking out of that meeting. That would change things. You're something, something has changed. Something has changed about the outlook of life. You'd you'd feel the privilege that it was to be brought into the relationship like that. You'd walk out of there with a purpose. You'd have something to live up to. And Packer says that that is a picture, and it's not a perfect picture, but it is a picture of what it means to know God. Here's what he said. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. When God speaks to us through the words of Holy Scripture, through Exodus, what's happening is the high and holy God is making himself known. He's bringing us in. He's opening his heart to us. Knowing him, being brought in by the highest and holiest of all beings, that puts life in proper perspective. You will know what you're living for as you know him. Today, God is making himself known specifically to us, right here in these moments, through these powerful acts of judgment. He is supreme. There is none greater, and we can know him. Let's ask for his help in this moment right now. God, we do just ask that you do this, that you make yourself known to us through your word this morning. We know that that's an act of your power and your will, and so we ask you to do it. We're relying on your promises, that you do make yourself known to us through your word. Thrill our hearts again with who you are, that you're speaking to us even today, that you're here and you're at work. We need you. You are God, and you alone, and we submit to you. Teach us now. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So taking a look just for a second, big picture, chapters 7 through 10 are all centered around the idea of knowing God, and, it, and it's focused on the plagues. That's how he's revealing himself. Some of you are familiar with them. Some of you are not. No problem. We're going to get to know them um, Today, we're just looking at chapter 7. Next Sunday, we're going to look at kind of a macro level, big picture view of all the plagues. But chapter 7 begins with a recommissioning of Aaron and Moses. These are the guys sent by God to be his mouthpiece before Israel. Something interesting, though, as they get started. Remember, they've already gone, and they failed. But here they are getting recommissioned again, sent back to Pharaoh, and God starts with something interesting. Interesting. Chapter 7, verse 1, that's where I am. Track with me. Please do look at your Bible. I want you to see that what we're teaching here at this church, it comes directly from the Word of God. Chapter 7, verse 1, says this. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. That's a little weird, a little strange. What's going on there? If you look at it, literally it gets even more strange. In the Hebrew it says that God tells Moses, you are God to Pharaoh. Now, why would God say that? Why, Why would God make Moses God? That's not exactly what he means. Like God is a good translation. The reason that God does that is because of who Pharaoh thinks he is. Pharaoh thinks he is a deity. Pharaoh thinks that he's a God. And so God, by putting Moses in a godlike role is causing something to happen here at the very outset of chapter 7 and and like I said, it's going to stretch all the way to chapter 10 and what's happening is a power encounter my kids get these books from the library I don't know if you've seen them it's kind of like these, it's a fictitious battle between two animals it's like, what if a tiger shark battled a lion, who would win? You know, and then they give you all the stats of like the different animals, and then it's like ultimately the the tiger shark would win, you know. God wants a cage match. That's what's going on here. It's a battle. Verses 1 through 7 say, essentially, God says, I'll tell you, you tell Aaron, Aaron tells Pharaoh. Pharaoh won't listen. But I am going to show him and all of Egypt, all the world, that I am more powerful. When I was a missionary overseas, some cultures that we worked among, the, the issue really wasn't, uh, is your God real? Like, does he exist? That wasn't the question. It wasn't, is your God right? As if he knows what's right or the better way to live. The question that those particular cultures were asking was, "Is your God more powerful? Is He more powerful than my God?" That is the the language of the power encounter. That's what we see happening here between Moses, who is like God, and Pharaoh, who thinks he is a god. Who's most powerful? Probably the most the most familiar power encounter to you all is. Um, when Elijah was on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And in that situation, the prophets of Baal were trying all day, cutting themselves, making all kinds of sacrifices, praying to Baal to send down fire from heaven. And and Elijah's sitting there thinking, he he actually out loud mocks him and says, Hey, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Why don't you go call him out of there to send down fire? all day they tried and all day they failed and then Moses and oh, I'm sorry not Moses boy I'm going to confuse those two Elijah Elijah says get a bunch of water pour it on the altar and he prays answer me o lord answer me that this people may know that you o lord are god and boom fire god wants egypt to know that he is supreme over every other Egyptian god, over every authority and power, including the so-called God Pharaoh himself. So, in order to make that happen, to show that he is mighty and powerful, he chooses, verse 7, an 80-year-old man and an 83-year-old man, Aaron, to face off with God Pharaoh. Someone sent me this quote from D.L. Moody about Moses. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. To be used of God, to make a difference in the world, a real difference, an eternal difference, you do not have to be at a certain age. You do not have to have a certain amount of physical strength or vitality. You don't need a certain skill set. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to be the smartest or the funniest or the most personable. What you need is you need to know God. Some of you, and I'm specifically talking about students right here, some of you, college students especially, You're at that age in life where the possibilities are really all in front of you. And I remember those days. Those were great days, exciting days. I remember being here at the University of Illinois. I was an undergrad here at U of of I and my heart catching fire with a passion for who God is and what he's doing around the world. I wanted to be passionate about that which God is passionate about. I wanted his purposes to carry me around the world and it did. What you do in life your job, your marital status, your location, that does not really matter as much as knowing God. The amount amount of knowledge that you accrue, the experience and the internships, the money you make, whatever you have laid out for your life, the experiences that you want to have traveling here, there, and everywhere, doing this, that, and the other thing, nothing will compare to the thrill of knowing God. To dive deeper into the well of his delights, to know him as you walk through the highest highs and the lowest lows, to know him. Make this the focus of your life. It's what you were made for, to know Jesus Christ. And then, many of us in this room, life already has a trajectory, a path. For the students, you guys, the world is your oyster. You can go out there, you've got a lot ahead of you, and that's an exciting place to be. But for many of us, the path has already been set. We're more or less going to go the path that we're on right now. And that's fine. That's not wrong. But we might feel like we're a nobody, like Moses felt. Like we were in a backwater place, or a backwater job, Moses was a shepherd. We might feel too old, or too overwhelmed, or too, you can fill in the blank. Life's kind of just drifted by. It's not too late. It's not too late. You're not in a position to not be used of God. Make your life about knowing God. To know him. Yeah, in the... In the place where he has you right now. Maybe you're in a place where you never thought you'd be there. But there you are. You know what he wants you to do? More than anything else, know him. Know him in the day by day. Know him in the mundane. Know him in your menial little mundane tasks. Know him in the overwhelmed moments. Know him. Invite him in. Experience him. Lean on him. Trust him. That's what he wants you to do. If anything, if anything, from looking at verse 7, we can know that whatever stage of life that we're in, whatever path we've taken, wherever we've ended up, God is not finished with you. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. No matter where I'm at right now in life, whatever I have in front of me, whether it feels like endless possibilities or a closed door, you can know that God is not finished If God could use a dead stick to smack the Nile and turn it to blood, if God could use an old man, then God can use me. Before now, Moses was saying things like, Why me? What are you doing? I'm not enough. Pharaoh, I mean, please, not to Pharaoh. Please send somebody else. I have uncircumcised lips. I'm outside the grace and the blessing of God. And now here he is. Look, verse seven, verse, this, verses one through seven. Look at what he's doing. And now, same guy, walking into Pharaoh's court. Something he's already done and failed. But now his youthful zeal, he killed that Egyptian back in chapter two has been replaced with a quiet confidence in God. Do you sense that change coming out of the pages right here? I think we have in Moses a great picture of what growing in the knowledge of God looks like, actually. What growing in the knowledge of God looks like. Moses walked into Pharaoh for a power encounter, but that is only because Moses had encountered the power of God. And I hope you receive that this morning, brothers and sisters. I hope you receive it as an invitation. Verse 7, 80-year-old Moses is an invitation to all of us to know God. Life is so complicated at times. I feel like, I, I don't know if you guys get into these ruts sometimes, but I feel like if I can just get the best life hacks or organize my schedule just right, or if I get just that one more skill, or if I get the best parenting tips, or if I'm on the right diet, or if I just sleep or exercise... All those things have their place. But the God of the universe, before all of that, invites you and me to know him. What a thrill. What a gift. The God of the universe wants to make himself known to me. And as you grow in getting to know him, just think. Just think of what he might have in store for you ahead. Okay, so, it's, so it continues. Okay, so that's, I'm looking at verses 1 through 7. But verse 8, it's time, right? It's time for this to happen, for the cage match, for the battle royale. Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt versus the two 80 year old shepherds. It's hilarious. Sent by God, they're sent by God. The first encounter is a duel of staffs that become snakes. This is verses 8 through 13, if you're tracking with me. Aaron throws down the staff, and it turns into a snake, just like before. This has happened before. Then Pharaoh gets his magic men to do the same thing. And it would seem like, oh, these gods are equal. God's not the supreme God. But then Aaron's staff snake swallows the other staff snakes. couple things. I know couple things. First, snakes were a big deal in Egypt. I mentioned this er, in an earlier sermon. On Pharaoh's crown, you guys, you Egyptian history buffs, might know that there was a snake right up there on the crown. In Egyptian mythology, they believe that the world was created by the sun god who took the form of a snake. So here, when the staff becomes a snake and this this fight ensues and then Aaron's staff ends up winning, this is a direct shot at that Egyptian god. Here's the second thing. How did that happen? Uh, Like the the Egyptian sorcerers thing. How did these Egyptian sorcerers do this? Is this for real? At least that's what I was asking myself when I looked at that. And I've thought about that for a long time. Like, how did they do that? The answer is yes, it is real. There is a real power at work, a power that enabled these men uh, to turn the staff, into a snake. But here's what's important about this power. We're gonna see this power show up a couple more times in Exodus here. This power that these sorcerers from Egypt use only imitates what God does. They can only copy what God does. You know who's an imitator of what God does? Satan. Satan. He masquerades as a messenger of light. It's a real power, but is it a power that perverts, twists, distorts, deceives, and it certainly never, ever saves? That's the power at work here. Imitation that leads to Destruction. That's what we're seeing from the Egyptian sorcerers. And so at the end, verse 13, if you're tracking with me, chapter 7, verse 13 says, Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So here's my question for you. What about you? As we've been going through Exodus, maybe this is some of your first Sunday here. And I'm glad you're here. You're hearing God's word from Exodus. That's good. Keep coming back. I hope you do. Some of you have been here for the whole thing. The question is this, are you listening to him? Or are you hardening your heart toward him? I remember taking a class here at U of I, religious studies class, uh, atheist professor. Um, He was talking about a book that tried to prove That all the miracles that that took place in Exodus could actually be explained away by natural phenomenon. Do you tend in that direction, doubting God exists, and so you're seeking some sort of naturalistic explanation? Are you hardening your heart, or maybe you're a bit like Pharaoh? I heard someone say recently, and I agree with this, Pharaoh is the original postmodern man. He'd fit in well with our time, with our culture. It's not that he didn't believe in God. He just didn't care. He didn't care about him. Do not impose your beliefs on me. Believe what you want over there. Do your job. Make my bricks. Leave me alone. But I'm certainly not going to listen to you as you talk about him. And I will not obey him. I won't do what he says. Do you harden your heart in that way to God? To what God is telling you? Push him away? Isolate him? Doesn't belong to you? Or maybe, maybe you're a Christian. You listen to God, but you find yourself wondering how much you need to listen to him in order to still be a Christian. You're willing to listen to some situations, but not all. Or maybe you come here. Sunday after Sunday you do your Christian thing but you're kind of checked out. You're not really listening to what God says. You just let Sunday kind of float by not just necessarily the sermons but what God is saying through the prayers and the music and the communion and your brothers and sisters and the sermon. You just let it pass by without hearing God's word. Here's the exhortation to us. Do not Harden your heart. Do not grow bitter towards God. Do not grow angry at Him. Do not turn away. Do not, you can believe. You actually can. You can listen to Him. You can get to know Him and follow what He says. Satan's lie, and really it's the same lie that Pharaoh believed too, is that there is more to be gained by disobeying God than by obeying Him. That is not true. You gain the most by listening to and obeying God. Hear his voice. Listen to his voice. Obey him. It is the path of life. Allow that to come into your heart this morning. Hear his word this morning. Open your heart to him. So verses 14 through 24 round out this chapter. It's the, the power encounter goes outside the walls of the palace. And this is when it starts to become cosmic in display. They span across all of Egypt. And next week, like I mentioned, we're going to take a bigger picture view of things, their their purpose and their design. But the setting here for the first plague is the Nile, the Nile River. The Nile, and we've mentioned this before, it's an important part of Egyptian life for a couple reasons. One, it flooded every year. And when the Nile flooded, it carried with it a whole bunch of nutrient-rich soil. And as that soil washed across the ground, it gave them fertile ground for them to grow all of their crops. Had to happen every year. If it didn't happen, they couldn't grow, they would starve. So they needed it to happen. It literally was life for them in that way. And it was also their source of water. They They used it to drink from. So they depended on it for all of life. The Nile symbolically and practically was the heart of Egypt, okay? So why is Pharaoh there? Maybe he's taking a bath. We've seen that earlier in Exodus, but probably more likely he was there to worship a particular Egyptian deity named Hapi or Happy H-A-P-I, the god of the Nile. So he's there most likely worshiping. Aaron and Moses walk up, And they say this, this is picking it up in verse 16. Track with me here. Verse 16 The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink and the egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the nile and aaron took his staff and he raised it in the air and with pharaoh and all of his officials watching he hit the water and it all turned to blood blood everywhere we used to live in a in a muslim part of china and there was a particular holiday where they sacrificed sheep in the streets. And I remember that day very vividly because the streets would literally run with blood. Blood would flow down the gutters and into the drains in the street. And the blood in the guts was very gruesome, but the smell, that smell, it's bad. And this was a river full of blood. It stank. Some of you might work in slaughterhouses, maybe you've slaughtered animals before, but this is next level stink. Okay? Verse 21. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Back in chapter 5, Israel was angry at Moses and said this, The Lord look on you and judge because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. They were really angry at Moses and God. We're a stench to Pharaoh. It's all your fault. Now he's going to kill us. They were afraid of Pharaoh. Way more afraid of him than of God. Now, God says to them, chapter 7, You're going to stink way worse than you think and not how you think. Brothers and sisters, there may be seasons where we are called to stink that the world would know him. We can really trust that God is in control, though, even when it doesn't seem like he is, even when it seems like everything's bad. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to turn on the messenger. We don't need to turn on God and say, what are you trying to do to us? God knows what he's doing. This passage actually closes with a very dark picture. It's one that should kind of snap us to attention. Verses twenty three and twenty four. I'll reread it with you right now. Verse twenty three. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Pharaoh went home, his heart was hardened, he did not listen. And the Egyptian people who depended on these idols, these false gods, are digging frantically along the Nile River alongside their god looking for life. We're going to unpack this more next week, but what God's doing here is he is mocking the idols of Egypt. He is putting them to open shame. Why? Because what he wants the people of Egypt and his people and us today to know is that he alone is God. He is the one true God. Look, if we, if we trust in anything other than the living God, it might start out great. And there's a lot of things that we can trust ourselves to. We'll talk about this more. But the day will come. If you trust in anything other than the living God, the day will come when you are clawing at the ground looking for life. You'll be reduced to scratching, clawing for life when life is not there. God will put to shame anything we trust in other than him. So what is God doing here in chapter seven? He's entered the ring He's drawn the battle lines and he will show himself as supreme over every other God, dominion, authority, power, and force. He and he alone is God and he does that, brothers and sisters, he does that in Exodus and he does that for us here today that we would know him. He's inviting you to know him, to have relationship with him? Do you know him? These calamities are judgment. Judgment on Pharaoh, on the people of Egypt, on their idols. And Jesus' disciples, when he was on the earth, they asked him about calamities. They were talking about a tower that fell down. And his disciples said, Hey, did that tower fall down on those people because they were sinners? Because of judgment? Was it a judgment that that happened? Those calamities, those bad things? And Jesus' response was this. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When we see judgments like these, judgments in Exodus, judgments in our world, calamities in the world, it's not for us to say, oh yeah, God's doing that because he's judging them. That's because they were bad. That is not what's going on. Jesus reframes it. We look at judgments like in Exodus and the hardships and the difficulties, the calamities of the world, and we, we need to see a call to repent, to turn to the Lord, to know him. God does do that. He turns water to blood. Do you know what God also does? He turns water to wine. Jesus went to a wedding, a wedding in Cana. and He took ordinary water, plain, bland water, and he turned it into the best wine that anybody had ever drank. God is the God who judges sin. And he is the God who shows steadfast love, tender mercy, to generation after generation of those who trust in him. One day, all of us, every single person in this room, will drink from a cup, the cup of God. And for some, it will be the cup of judgment. And for some, it will be the cup of blessing. Those who know God receive the blessing. How do you know God? You trust in the one that God sent You trust in the Son of God, who drank the cup of God's wrath, of God's judgment, so that we will forever drink the cup of blessing in his presence, forever. Let's pray. Lord, we turn to you. These are sober words. These are powerful words. And at the end of it all, the plea here is, from you to us, is that we would know you. And that is what we want. We want to know you. So we do. We turn to you right now. We trust in you, Lord. We don't, we don't have it together. We are we're weak. We are frail. We are needy. But you are God supreme over all. You see us and you know us. Oh, Lord, we, we want to know you more. We want to make our lives about knowing you more. So Lord, continue to do that. Continue to fix our eyes on you. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who turned water to wine, who brought us into your great blessing. You are supreme and you reign and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.